Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning, church, or good afternoon, or whenever you're watching this. We were recording again on a Friday um, afternoon because of the impending weather. And my hope is that you are watching this with six inches of snow or eight inches or 12 inches of snow in your front yard. Um, but, you know, whatever the case, uh, even if you're here on Sunday and the snow bails on us, I will not be there because my son tested positive uh, for COVID and he was just going back to college. He's asymptomatic. We are not concerned um, and that's fine. But I, my family is is vaccinated and boosted. I'm vaccinated, but not boosted because after I got vaccinated, I noticed that my ears were ringing and have a condition called tinnitus or tinnitus, say it however you want to. <laughs> and, uh, and so I have reservations about getting um, boosted because of that. So all that by way of explanation, but it also fits into my message um, for today. And so wherever you are this morning, this afternoon, this evening, thanks for tuning in with us. Uh, before I go into my message today, I want to ask you a question, and that is, if, when you think about what, what three, if you had to pick three words to describe the church as a whole in America today, what three words come to your mind to describe the church? We're pre-recorded, so you could pause this and have a little conversation about that. That's not a bad idea. When I asked people this week, here are some of the words um, that I got, tired, angry, dismissive. Uh, full of potential, divided, declining, fractured, inconsistent, anxious, idolatrous, prideful, distracted, life-giving, but antiquated, varied, um, adrift, ungrounded, uh, segregated, performative, and political. Uh, Mine were fractured because when I think of the church in America, I think of all sorts of different things because there's all sorts of different types of churches. Uh, I thought about angry, and I think most of the church probably isn't angry but the angry part is the loud part, or the part that's portrayed to us uh, most commonly. And then I thought scared, because a lot of the changes in culture um, and, and some things about the church in decline, like we're concerned about what, where things are going and what's going to happen. I, I asked that question, and my mind went there, because we're in a passage where I think Peter presents a vision of the character and nature of the church and how we should be. So here's the next passage, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think Peter is presenting a picture of what the church is supposed to be, and I don't think it matches up well with the the words that we use to describe the church. He said fractured, or we said fractured, varied, political, and segregated, and he said unified. Uh, We said dismissive, and he said sympathetic. We said prideful and performative, and he said humble. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about, like compare that, you know, what is his vision versus the reality that we're living in? What keeps us from being that church? And then what would happen if we were that church today? And most of my time will be spent on the first question. The last two will be pretty quick at the end. But Peter starts, finally, all of you 
And so he is speaking to the church. Um, he is wrapping up a section where he's talking about the way you interact with the culture around you that it, for their, in their case is hostile towards them and all of you, all these churches in um, Turkey. And he starts with the unity of mind, um, have the same mind. What does it look like today within the church and among churches to have unity of mind? Uh, part of the reason that I brought up COVID and tinnitus and vaccinations was because what does it mean to have unity of mind? I mean, how many of you have been vaccinated? You know, don't answer that question if you're in the room watching my video because of all this stuff. Like, don't answer it. Um, but, but do you have to have the same vaccination status in order to have unity of mind? Do you have to vote the same in order to have unity of mind um, within or among uh, churches? And some churches are definitely like that. You know, do you have to... Like, do you have to agree that you don't have to vote the same to have unity of mind in order to have unity of mind? You might want to pause and think about that for just a minute. Um, what does it mean to have unity of mind? I mentioned from time to time the four, like, hot cultural issues of our day. Race is one of them. Poverty is one of them. Sexuality is one of them. And abortion is one of them. Do we have to think the same about those things to be considered um, unified or to have unity of mind? What unites us? Paul, uh, when he's writing to Philippians, I think speaks to this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything in, in anything by your opponents. The gospel is what unites us. Christ is what unites us. Uh, Ken has taught a theology class, many of you have taken it, where he at one point talks about like what's the box within the essentials of your faith are, um, what's, what's in there. And so certainly for us, Jesus is the main thing in there, you know, in the divinity of Jesus, he's fully human and fully God. The resurrection of Jesus is in the box, the virgin birth of Jesus is in, uh, is in the box. I think like the dignity of the idea that God created us is in the box and the dignity of mankind that comes from that. And that speaks to the hot issue of racism. It'll alleviate it if we all see the dignity of, 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 um, of all of mankind. I think our need for the forgiveness of our sins, that we've sinned against God and need forgiveness is definitely in the box and will lead to humility. The, that God's provision for that forgiveness through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is in the box. The authority of, of Scripture, of the Bible, is in the box in, at some level, you know. And I don't know that we need the exact same definition of inerrancy, but we need to be on the same page. The truth is not something discovered by us. It's something that has been revealed to us. And so we depend on God's revelation through Scripture. And mission is in that box that we are called to go and make disciples. I think part of the reason that we're so fractured as a church in America is because for a long time, mission wasn't urgent. And maybe we can be forgiven that, that for a long time, everybody said they were a Christian. And so mission didn't seem urgent right now in our context. So we got I don't know, distracted by smaller issues. And now that mission is becoming more urgent, you see churches working together in ways that you haven't for a long time around issues like religious liberty. You know, there's enough there to agree on that should outweigh the things that we disagree on. And we should know the difference between those things. Frankly, the ability to agree, to disagree even, should be a mark of the church. I got a, an email from my soccer coach 
uh, not my kid's soccer coach, but my, I'm a 50-year-old man with a soccer coach. And um, he, I'm on this, I got on this adult men's team a year ago, and he's just kind of managed the team for, a, for 20 years or something. He got hurt, can't play, but likes to be involved. And so he sent something about registration. And then at the end of the email, he basically in two paragraphs said, Trump is evil, and if that offends you, you can find a different team. And I was like, well, I'm not a Trump supporter. I don't think everything that he did was the end of the world, but I'm not a Trump supporter. But I don't think there should be a litmus test to be a part of a soccer team. Or if there is, I don't think it should be political. I think it should have something to do with soccer, you know. And I'll find a time to have that conversation with him. But it's, it's, it's just, it's divided us in so many ways that the church should be an example of saying these are the things that really, really matter. And this will unite us. And I think that's what Peter's after. Sympathy. Sympathy is a word that means sharing the same feeling. And so um, united on truth, but working hard to understand, like, where the people that disagree with you are coming from. You know, uh, I think we, we just have a tendency in our culture to assume, assume that the people that are, are ideological or political or religious opponents are either evil or they're stupid or they're both. And I don't think that's helpful or true. I don't think it's true. And um, I, I mentioned a podcast that I listened to, I don't know, six months ago. I can't remember when I mentioned it, but it's called the Honestly Podcast. It is, she's not a Christian. It's not a, it's just a, it's interesting cultural narrative. And, um, but she, she had a woman on the podcast. They were both, they're talking about abortion, but, and they're both ideologically in a, in a different place than I am on that issue. But their point was to try and express and understand the other side of the issue from where they are. And I thought, man, that's great. And, and they, the lady talked about, um, how her dad taught her, always work from your ideological opponent's best argument, not from their worst. Try and understand their best argument. I thought, man, if we all did that, it would make things more complicated. There'd be less black and white and more gray, but we would do so much better um, if we did that. I mean, understand that people are going to say crazy stuff, but not mean what they say because they're in a bad place or bad things have happened to them. Uh, that there are emotional things going on underneath what people say, and you don't have to hold that against them forever, you know. Be ready to sympathize with the pain that people are or have gone through. Um, there's that quote, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And we do well. I think that's what sympathy is. You know, there's so many issues um, as it relates to the church, where over the years, like, things have come to me, and I thought, man, that's just hard, and it complicates things. Like, the Catholic sexual abuse scandal or anybody that's been abused by a religious leader in in a variety of different ways like i i think about those folks and think like how do they ever set foot in a church again like how do they not have big issues with god for the authority that god put in place doing that to them and that's difficult you know i um i thought about the conversations that we had with folks from chosen generation during be the bridge about their experiences with racism throughout their lifetimes and how generous they were to share those with us and how that just deepened my understanding and sympathy regarding uh, that issue. I thought about a book I read um, years ago when I think about the transgender issues and the homosexuality in the church. And a guy named Wesley Hill wrote a book called Washed and Waiting. And um, he grew up in a conservative Christian uh, household, realized early that he was same-sex attracted, struggled, wrestled, didn't want that, and he, he was at Wheaton College and told a professor, you know, about it, and that's where he, you know, came out, I guess, and started to try and figure things out, and he is convicted that 
He understands what the Bible says about homosexuality the same way the church has understood it for 2,000 years, that God doesn't want him to act on that. And so he's living a celibate lifestyle and believes God is with him and, and he is, you know, struggles but is okay with that. But he described being at a wedding in his 20s, um, a friend's wedding, and he said, I danced with this bridesmaid and she was drop dead, like most, most beautiful woman I've ever been around. And she had on bridesmaids dressed to the nines. And he said, I danced with her. And I thought, if I am ever going to be attracted to a woman, it's going to happen right now. And he said, and it didn't happen. And I wanted it to happen so bad. And there's some sympathy, like an understanding that happens in hearing other people's, like where they're coming from, that we're called to. Um, there's a ministry that we've had at Oak City Church for years called Stephen Ministry. And um, it is, that's a hard name. It's a national ministry. They call it Stephen Ministry. We can't change the name of it, but it's the best they've described it is they're not cure givers. They're not counselors, but they are caregivers. And so they help people that are really struggling. And a lot of it is by listening well and by helping them grieve well, helping them lament because there's so much healing that comes through that. And so many, so many people here have gone through that training. It's like 50 hours of training. Everyone that's gone through their training says, it changed my life. Forget Stephen ministry, it just changed my relationships. And so Katie and Micah are distilling some of the best of that training and offering workshops this year to Oak City Church and you know, talking about how to love your neighbor well. And so here's Katie, and she's gonna talk to you for a minute about those workshops. Hey, Oak City Church, this is Katie Pritchett, and I'm here to tell you the obvious. We live in a hurting world, and we are called to love and care for that hurting world. So what holds us back from that? Fear. I mean, more than likely, fear. Uh, fear can sometimes look like complacency, but, you know, it's a fear of not knowing what to say, so I just won't say anything. Um, fear of getting hurt, so just withdraw and let someone else handle it. Um, I've never been good at that, so I'm just going to let other people fill in the blanks for me. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to love. We're called to love our neighbors and our enemies, which covers everyone. Um, so what do we do with those fears? Well, God says he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, which to me says that fears are real. They're valid, but we're not supposed to let those dictate how we live and how we love the people that are in our lives. So... Why don't we be equipped? Why don't we learn how to love people well so that we can step out in confidence? And I think I have a good solution for that. Um, I have been a part of a ministry, Stephen Ministry, for eight years now. I've led it with Debbie Meeks and Micah Cantrell. Stephen Ministry is a ministry that is designed to care for and love well people who are going through a life crisis. Part of that is training people it's a it's 40 hours of intense training and it's fantastic material and it applies as everyone has learned to not just care for Stephen ministry relationships but also in your everyday life and we have our biggest lament has always been this is so good how do we make it accessible to the church as a whole because asking them for 40 hours is a lot well, Micah has done the work. She's gone through the training material and she's pulled out the nuggets that we have learned over time are applicable in everyday life and not just in uh, official ministry life. And so that is what I'm here to talk about. It's a workshop series that we are calling Caring for Troubled Hearts. And troubled hearts, not troubled lives. 
or situations, I guess I, I could say, because the everything outside can look great, can look good. The outside does not necessarily reflect how we're doing on the inside. And so this is about caring for the troubled hearts, working past what is seen and getting to the heart of the issue. Um, now, specifically, February 6th, which is in a few weeks, Mike and I are going to be doing the first of a series of workshops. It'll be once a month for two hours after church. Um, and we are going to be talking about feelings this time. Feelings. It's a feelings minefield out there. So what do you do with feelings? Do you ignore them because they make you feel uncomfortable? Do you ignore yours? Do you ignore the people's feelings around you? Do you just ignore other people entirely um, because feelings scare you? Do you try to persuade people to feel differently? Do you try to convince them that their feelings are wrong and they should go a different way? Because their feelings aren't valid, but yours are. Um, do you just uh, keep your distance from difficult feelings because you're afraid you're going to get sucked in to a situation that you won't be able to get out of? This workshop handles these situations and provides tools to help you work through them and step into those conversation, or conversations, situations, relationships with confidence and compassion to care and love them well and hopefully minister to their hurting hearts. Now, this is one of a number of workshops. If you can't make it to this one, that's okay. You can go to any of the other ones because... We're going to have them throughout the year, once a month, like I said. Um, some of the topics that we're going to talk, well, I should say, they're standalone workshops. So they, don't, they, they are fantastic, each one of them. But they are standalone, so you don't have to go to all of them in order to get everything out that you need. You can, if some topics stand out to you and others aren't interesting, that's totally fine. Come to what you can, come to what you want to come to. Um, we'd love to have you at all, but we understand that's probably not practical. Um, Certain topics that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the art of listening. Are you actually listening or are you just being quiet and waiting your turn to talk? How do you care in a distinctively Christian way? Process versus results oriented goals. This has been a game changer and a relationship saver for me because I was doing it all wrong. Assertiveness. Yes, you can be a Christian and be assertive. Jesus did it. So, so can you. But assertiveness and aggressiveness are not the same thing. Maintaining boundaries in a caring relationship. Because if you're going to go the distance in a relationship, you need to maintain boundaries. Healthy boundaries. We're going to talk about what do you do with someone who's having thoughts of suicide? Yeah, because this is real life. And we can't pretend these things don't happen because they do. And you want to be equipped to be able to know where to go and what to say and how to help. Um... So these are just a few, a handful of the topics that we're going to talk about. We will provide child care. The church is going to provide child care. This first workshop, we are going to, Micah and I are going to provide lunch from that point forward. We, it probably will just be a bring your own lunch. Um, guys, this is good. I'm really excited about this because I've seen this training material um, affect my life in such a positive way and the lives of everyone we've trained. Um, so please come. Mike and I are so looking forward to working through this material with you, to learning about you, getting to know you, hearing your hearts, and helping equip you to more confidently and compassionately love the people in your life well, and hopefully in the process, care 
for the hurting and troubled hearts. All right. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie and Micah and Debbie and all the folks that are involved in that for all the effort you've put in over all the years, balloon drops and confetti cannons and all those things um, because it's, there's so much work time and work and energy and it's been such a blessing to so many people over time. If we, were, if we knew how to listen better as a church, if we committed to listen 25% better to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our spouses, to our kids, to our, our quote unquote enemies, if we listen 25% better, um, we, would, we would change. Our relationships would change. People's perceptions, the church would change and people's perceptions of the church would change. It has so much power. So please consider signing up for these um, workshops. Peter goes on, brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, Jesus at one point says, they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. He doesn't say by your politics. He doesn't say um, by your slogans, by your buildings, by your signs, by your worship even. They'll know you're Christians by the way you love each other. I feel like as a church, we do this, we do this fairly well, especially in a pinch. In a crisis, we rally well. There was a family just a few months ago that experienced a crisis, um, you know, relatively new to the church. And the church, like, nearly overwhelmed them with support and they felt it and people saw it and so when the church loves well it matters it's harder to do that we don't we rally better than we like care over time because <laughs> it's it's harder to know what those needs are to know how to care for them um, to not be too busy uh, to do that but we need to do that well i thought actually what came to my mind about this was the baptist men of north carolina every time there is some type of physical disaster. The Baptist men of North Carolina are there, you know? And, um, and the thing about it is it seems weird. Like, it seems like, wow, those guys, that's kind of weird. What are these old guys with nothing left to do, you know? But that should be normal. That should be what the church is known for, is loving in concrete, practical ways for those who are in need. Do we, do we love? Do we care for each other like family cares for family, because in a, an increasingly fragmented, isolated, lonely world, people, they're longing for that brotherly love. Um, a tender heart, the, the root for that word is, is a word in the, in the Greek that means bowels. I can never say it right, so I'm not going to try to, but there's a scene where Jesus looks out over the crowds, and it says he has compassion for them, and it's not the same word, but the same root of this, your bowels turning over because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep that had no shepherd, right? And, and so that it moved him. Um, I think Jesus would look at what's going on in our culture today and decisions that people are making. He wouldn't be like, tsk, tsk. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't be judgy. You know, he would be like, hey, oh, I see what direction you guys are going. That is not going to work out well for you. You are going to learn a lesson the hard way, and I really don't want you to. Please trust me on this. That's how we would respond, and it would move him. And I think that's how we're, we're called to, to think about some of the things that are going on around us in our culture. And, and we're, not, we're not the shepherds, so that's not a condescending thing. It's like a sheep saying to another sheep, hey, I found a shepherd and it's a great deal. He's really smart. You should check this out. And that's what we're called to, You're kind-hearted. Um, and finally, humility of mind. And humility is something that I think is, sounds good, like we like to talk 
about that of people at like funerals and stuff like that. But in the, in the moment, like it doesn't get you very far in our culture. Like our culture doesn't, a self-promoting culture, humility, those things don't go together great, but that's what we're called to. Um, Paul, again in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Wow. I mean, in our culture and, and even as the church, like, wow. Um, but consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not like, oh, I stink. I can never get that right. I'm an idiot. It's not that. It's thinking of yourself less, like less often. Just realizing it's not about you, you know? And in humility, realizing Christ had to die on a cross for your sins, but he did because he loves you a whole lot. And having an accurate picture of yourself, which is a big biblical picture of yourself. Um, and for the church, it's not about us. We're the body of Christ, and so it's about him. Now, Peter, like, doubles down on all this stuff and then adds to it, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This is kind of hard. Like, it's going to cost you something um, to, to live this way. And I don't think, I think the evil for evil or reviling for reviling is a little bit difficult for us to understand um, because uh, we don't, I don't think we get persecuted as much as we get like marginalized, just kind of shoved into a corner and people find out about your beliefs and they're like, oh, that's nice that you still believe that. And then they're like, what an idiot. Like, who would believe that? And so it's like, like we don't get invited to play in all the reindeer games. And there's some conversations that we're just not a part of. It's not a big deal, you know. I think it's getting worse. Um, I read an article this week about... I think I talk about this stuff, but this framed it up really well, that the church has been in the positive world and then the neutral world, or in its relationship with culture, and then the negative world. So they said the positive world is pre-1994. Society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going person remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. So he, he pins that to 1994. In the neutral world, to 2014, society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but it's not disfavored either. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. And finally, the negative world, Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. And I think we can feel that things have been moving in that direction. And those obviously aren't perfect times and perfect descriptions, but they're not bad either. I think it's hard because we live in all three, you know. Um, we live in the religious South, and so there's just a hangover of the positive world. And yet, 
like there's a tension there because younger people are like, why do I have to live in that world just because I'm here? Like, that's stupid. And um, part of living in all three is that so many of you work with people all over the world. And so you're talking to people in different worlds, positive or negative, like every day, all the time, you know. And part of it is being in Raleigh, which is like a big small town, you know, <laughs> and the small town is more likely to be in the positive world and the big city is more likely to be in the negative world. And it depends, you know, who you're talking to. I'm not sure how negative, how hostile it's going to get. My hope is that it gets more dismissive and not as much hostile. And I have a feeling that as we as a church become less political and put less hope in politics, that, that we'll, the church will be seen as less of a threat um, and that it'll become, you know, less hostile. But I think it's going to take a while for us to figure out what that, um, what that looks like. But Peter's talking to us, you know, and he's saying it's not enough to not just not exchange evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but you have to exchange a blessing instead, a, a blessing that word is eulogize. Um, and so it's a good word. But more than that, to seek the good of the person reviling you or doing evil towards you. That takes a lot of strength um, to not just fight back, to not just pout and say, well, fine, you're going to get your, you know, but to say, no, I'm going to actively seek your good, even though you're actively seeking my bad. That's, there's strength, there's power in that. Uh, Weston preached months ago now about forgiveness and said that, he lost his job. It didn't, wasn't related to his faith, but it was like just work politics and felt like he wasn't treated fairly. And so he forgave the person, but then he, he blessed him <laughs> in word and in deed, like sent him a gift. That guy is still talking about how this guy that I used to work with sent me a gift. It was really weird. But, but like that's power. That's power is to do the countercultural thing. Um, and, and because people are asking like, who does that? Well, you know who does that? Jesus does that. And the more we're like Jesus, the more we show the power of Jesus. Um, one person wrote, this can be so difficult when we feel pushed into a corner as exiles. When criticized and scorned, we often respond in kind because the natural inclination of every human heart is to play dodgeball with shame. If we're mocked, we'll mock back. If we're trolled, we'll troll back only one better. But Jesus left a different example. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Peter simply Challenge, didn't simply challenge his suffering readers to passively receive the world's abuse as if that's what it means to turn the other cheek. Instead, we're to actively pursue honor, to seek peace, to bless and not curse, to respect our authorities and dignify our enemies, whether they be deadbeat dads or despots. It's a lot. It's a lot. What keeps us from being that church? I read an article um, a few weeks ago on just it kind of was about the emotional life of pastors, I guess, and some of the stuff you deal with. But some quotes that stood out to me were one from James Baldwin, who was a civil rights activist. And he said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And I thought, man, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, that we hold on to it because once it's gone, then we have to deal with lament. And just as things are happening with the church and our culture, I think there is a lot of hate that the church foments that is not that we're not supposed to. Um, and it's because there's pain underneath it. Uh, the the author of that article talked about enemies and the psychological 
um, purpose of enemies. And so he said, enemies first give us someone to blame so we don't have to face reality and take responsibility for our own life to grow, to mature, and to face our shame. And so enemies allow us to do that. And second, enemies give us a sense of coherence and control in the face of evil and chaos. And so he said this research has demonstrated that when people think about their enemies, whether it's ISIS or China or just voters on the other, uh, for the other political party, afterward, the, the world feels less disordered and less scary. They feel evil is under control because they could categorize it because they simplified it, you know? And so I think there are ways in which we, we demonize because it helps us deal with things um, better. I think that's part of the reason we've gotten political as the church. Like one pastor said that, that liberal, mainline denominations have wedded themselves to liberal political parties and cons evangelical churches have wedded themselves to conservative political parties. And so now the culture sees us as nothing but a political power block. I think that's true in so many ways. And I think it's because we put more hope in the political process to change, to change culture and to change lives than in Jesus. Um, because it's easier to win a vote than change a heart. And that's a huge problem for us as a church. The only way to live like this, to not fight back when it's our instinct, is to believe that God is in control and that he is at work all around us. And so as we follow him, he is working through us. And that, that we need the gospel for that, right? The temptation with enemies is because when we have someone that's wrong, then we are right. And that gives us a, right, a form of righteousness and honestly, the less our identity is in Christ and who he is and what he has done for us, that we, like our righteousness will never be enough before God. And so he's given us the righteousness of Christ. The more we have that and the more central that is to our lives and our church, the less we have to be right when it comes to how we interact with the world around us and the freer we are to be like Jesus. Think about Jesus going to the cross. Like, was Jesus a pushover when he went to the cross? And he wasn't. He expressed that God, the Father, was in complete control the whole time. He told Pilate, listen, you wouldn't have any authority unless my Father in heaven gave it to you. And he said, um, I could call down legions of angels, and they could take care of this right now, but that's not what needs to happen right now. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Oh, how much strength and power there is in trusting that God is in control. And the centurion, once Jesus died, said, surely... This was the Son of God. He saw that power, and it changed him. We are called to share in those sufferings, to know that Christ is with us in that, not because the world needs us to suffer on their behalf, but because in that the world understands who Christ is and what he has done for them and the power that's behind it. Man, what would happen if we were this type of church? I think Jesus would draw people to Jesus through a church that looked like Jesus. Right? I don't think we should have any doubt that he would use a church that looks like him and will and can. Um, one of the people I asked the question about what, what words would you use to describe the church uh, was my college-age son. And so the first word that he used was misrepresented. And um, especially if Oak City is your church, I want you to be extremely encouraged by that and to think about that for a second. Because... Oak City is the only church that Michael has ever known, ever known. You have raised Michael spiritually, you know, and this is what he knows in church. And, and so when he moves out into the world and the world is hostile towards the church, his gut is to say, no, you don't understand what the church is. 
Like, there's beauty in the church. That is a beautiful group of people. And I do think we've lived out these things. And, and John Fouché and I were talking about this the other day. He said, actually, I think we do pretty well on those things. You know, unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and tenderhearted and humility. And a young person that has come out of our church recognizes that. Man, be encouraged because God is going to use a church like this. And the second thing he said was minority. And um, we didn't have a better word to describe that, but it's, he doesn't he doesn't know the positive world. He doesn't know when it was a social expectation and to be a part of a church. All he knows is neutral to negative. So he doesn't have to lament. He doesn't have to grieve the loss of that. He just has to get on with things. And we would do so well as the older generations now to understand that about the younger generations and just move forward and be positive and trust that God is in control. God is gonna use a church like this. He is gonna use his church. There are giant things that can happen in our culture with churches like this, but it's gonna take faith to live out like that. Now, before I finish, I'm going to mention again words I've used the last few weeks, engage and belong and advance, because to be a church like this, those things need to happen. It's hard to say engage on a, um, on a Sunday where we're probably sitting in our living rooms looking at the snow. Soon enough, we are going to be able to engage. And we can engage. You've engaged. You've tuned in. So thank you for engaging and engage with each other. Just send somebody a text. Ask them how they're doing. Um, tell them that you miss them. And belong. Like in order to have sympathy, in order to have brotherly love, in order to be tender-hearted, you need to be close to each other. And to have unity, you need to be close to each other. You need to feel like you belong and we're on the same team in advance. The mission is the thing. It's one of the, one of the giant things that's going to unify us together and let us major on the majors and minor on the minors as we seek um, to be a part of what God is doing in our city and in our world. So engage, belong, and advance. And finally, I'll just say this, like we're not here to take communion, but we do this every week. And this message reminded me of why, because we're reminded of the sufferings of Christ. This is the body of Christ that's broken for us and the blood of Christ that's been poured out for us. And he calls us to share in those sufferings. And as we do that, the world around us is going to see the power of God. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for giving us a vision of what you want the church to be like, of its character, Lord. Um, we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live that out, that you would convict us of the places where we fall short, that you would give us confidence that you were at work um, within us and among us and around us, that you were at work uh, behind the scenes and on the stage, Lord, that you were at work all around us and we can trust that, God. Um, and would we increasingly uh, find our sense of value and worth and identity in the person of Christ and the love that you have for us and have expressed through Jesus. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.